During the program, Frank Muir goes into... goes into money and investigates the humor of the subject with the help of Alfred Mark. This, this Scotsman went into a Jewish tailor shop in the East End and said he wanted to see the best suit in the shop and the proprietor showed him one. He says, look at this, sir. Look at this. I'm not going to ask hundred pounds, not fifty, forty pounds, and it's yours. Scotsman felt the cloth. He said, I wouldn't give you a thirty pound, but not in twenty-five. Twenty pounds is my price. Right, he said, it's yours. That's the way I like to do business. No haggling. <laughs> four thugs, four thugs tried to mug an Irishman, you see. And he put up a tremendous fight. It took them a half an hour to overpower him. When they did, all they found was three pence in his pocket. I said, why earth did you put up such a fight just for three pence? Well, sure, said the Irishman. I thought you were after the ten pound note in my right sock. <laughs> This fellow paid 500 pounds for a talking dog. Took it along to his pub to show it off, put it on the gallery, he says, now this dog talks. He said, Kelly, I'll bet you. Ten to one, ten to one, this dog talks. And all the fellows laid their bets down, he took about 300 quid. Right, he says, come on, talk, and the dog just sat there. He said, talk! The dog just sat there, saying nothing. All the fellows picked up the money and left, he said, laughing their heads off. The fellow got the dog outside, he said, why don't you talk? What do you talk, you stupid animal? The dog said, not so much of the stupid, stupid. <laughs> the odds you're going to get next time. <laughs> now, you may have heard about this... You may have heard about this deep freeze reanimation. It's a simple idea, really. The idea is that you get yourself deep frozen while you're still alive, and then you get thawed out after 20 years or so when the economic climate's better, you see. Well, there was a bloke who had this done. He invested all his money, 10,000 pounds, in stocks and shares, and got himself deep frozen. 20 years later, he was thawed out, and his first action, of course, was to leap into a phone box and make his stockbroker. How much is my 10,000 pounds worth now, he said. It's worth two and a quarter billion pounds. So there's a good gracious, said the fellow. That's amazing. Then he was interrupted by the operator. He said, time is up. Put another two billion pounds in the next three minutes, please. <laughs> what is it, Doctor? I've decided to double my fee in your case as of today. But why, Doctor? I'm not a bit better, and I've been coming to see you for four years now. That is why. <laughs> a very old and very wealthy Greek ship owner was breathing his last in an oxygen tent in a hospital. And there he was, 94, lovely innings, but there he was going, in the oxygen tent. And he called for his only son to attend his bedside. From inside the oxygen tent, he said, Giorgio, Giorgio, is that you, my son? He says, yes, Papa. He says, Giorgio, when I've gone, my boy, it's all yours. Everything I have is yours. Oh, deplete the yachts, hold the houses, the house in Athens, the shooting lodge in Scotland, the villa in the south of France, it's all yours, my boy. And underneath the floorboards in the Athens house, you will find a big steel box. There's one million pounds in onces. It's all yours, my boy. I got one last request. He said, yes, daddy. He says, take your bloody foot off the oxygen pipe. <laughs> The odd thing about money is that nobody seems very happy about it. The commonest complaint on the subject is from people who haven't got enough of it. And this is heard as much from the rich as the poor. While great wealth is one of the commonest ambitions, 
Those who have attained it seem to spend all their time complaining about the problems of administering it. The amount they are taxed on it and how little satisfaction it brings. But satisfactory or not, money is essential and always has been. The poet Horace. By honest means if you can, but by any means make money. Samuel Butler. It has been said that the love of money is the root of all evil. The want of money is so quite as truly. Yes, you've got to have money. And once you've got it, you've got to keep it. Shalom Aleichem. Money is round. It rolls away. <laughs> I suppose the only comfort to be gained is that you can't take it with you. Though it is possible to retain a degree of financial control, even from beyond the grave. <laughs> May I have your attention, please? This is the last will and testament of our dear friend and relative Samuel B. Cohen. I, Samuel Benjamin Cohen, being of sound mind and body, do hereby declare this to be my last will and testament. Number one. To my son, my beautiful boy Sheldon, my firstborn, who made me proud of him all my life, a fine son, a good husband, a wonderful father, and the best dentist in the United States. <laughs> to my son Sheldon, I bequeath tax-free one million dollars. Wonderful. Good luck, <laughs> Number two, to my beautiful daughter Jane, with a Y. <laughs> to that lovely child who always got high marks and helped her mother with the dishes when we couldn't afford a maid. Who got a scholarship to Hunter College. Who, for a long time, has been a little too particular or she'd be married already. To my lovely daughter Jane, with a Y, tax-free one million dollars. Such a generous man. Isn't that beautiful? Number three, to my beautiful wife Miriam, friend, companion, love of my life. To the lovely Miriam I give with pleasure everything that's not in her name already. The white Chrysler Imperial with a white sidewall and the Princess Telephone. The Picasso from the back of the store. My Arnold Palmer Golf Club with a new leather bag. And tax-free two million dollars in cash. Enjoy, sweetheart, enjoy. Oh, what a marvelous husband. An angel, not a man, an angel. From back of the store and everything. <laughs> Number four. To my brother-in-law, Louis, who lived with us all of his life, who never had to do a day's work, <laughs> who knew how to handicap the ponies better than anybody, who only smoked the finest cigars, mine. <laughs> to my brother-in-law, Louis, who all his life said I would never remember him in my will. Hello, Louis.
that was Jack Guilford and others. But it's easy enough for the dead to be complacent about money. It's the living who have to cope with it and deal with the everyday problems of budgeting. How does one balance the books? Well, domestic economies are possible, though some people take that sort of thing to extremes. An extract from a letter to the Times. I too can remember buying matters of three halfpence a dozen boxes, and now that they're tuppence a box, I split each of its forty contents into two with an old safety razor blade. It's easily done, and so get eighty for my tuppence day. <laughs> really, the only way to manage money is to know at all times how much you can spend. In the words of Josh Billings, live within your income, even if you have to borrow money to do so. <laughs> but buying money isn't always easy. There seems to be a marked reluctance on the part of banks to shell out, even to really deserving cases. An anonymous thought on the subject. The banker is a fellow who will lend you money if you can prove that you don't need it. <laughs> Another from the poet Robert Frost. A bank is a place where they lend you an umbrella in fair weather and ask for it back again when it begins to rain. I think you find the same sort of problems when you go to a high street bank or to one of those finance companies which carry such alluring advertisements on the back of newspapers and in America on commercial radio. Oh, uh, oh hello, is this, uh, is this the Easy Loan Finance Company? Is, that, is this the Easy Loan Finance Company? Oh, listen, uh, I would like some information. I'll, okay, I'll wait. <laughs> Is this, uh, is this still uh, Easy Loan Finance Company? Oh, listen, uh, uh, you give information? Oh, good. Well, because uh, I would like some information about uh, the Easy Loan by the Telephone Plan. The Easy Loan by the Telephone Plan. Uh, Happy Dugan told me to call. Happy Dugan. You know, he's that guy, he's on in the morning on the radio, and he tells you what time it is and what the weather is like all the time, and he always tells you about the easy loan by the telephone plan, and he says that, uh, you know, when you call up, don't forget to mention that old Happy Dugan told you to call, you know. So? So I mention it. You know. Dugan. He's a guy down in the morning, you know, on the radio, and he tells you what the weather is. Uh... So listen, uh, uh, can I talk to my pal, please? My pal. Well, Happy Dugan always says you have a pal at Easy Loan, so, uh... So I wonder if I can talk to my pal, please. Oh, really? Huh. Well, uh, listen, pal. Uh, here's the thing. I understand that you can get up to $1,000 just uh, by calling up, you know, so, uh... Well, I come in tomorrow to pick up my check, okay? This is Shelley Berman, who've been listening to commercial radio. Bankers have always got good reasons why they can't lend you money. And there's one common factor with all these reasons. It's never the bank's fault. It's due to fluctuations on the world markets, or a run on the pound, or more likely government policy. There's always a freeze on somewhere. And whoever's chancellor is always doing something to make things difficult for us. The next quotation comes from a News Chronicle report of 1952. But really, it's timeless. The chancellors seem to rule out in advance any hopeful and constructive action, except more import cuts, no reduction in wages, no reduction in the standard of living, no reduction in unemployment, no economies, nothing. <laughs> of course, when there is government control on incomes, it affects everyone, or nearly everyone. 
report from the Sunday Express. A spokesman at Buckingham Palace denied that the Prince would be beating the incomes freeze. It's not that sort of income, he said. It simply means he will get a larger share of the revenue from his estate than he did previously. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that chap's name is Les Majesty, isn't it? <laughs> whatever, your, whatever your business nowadays, it's important to be au fait with the world economic patterns and government strategy, even if you're just a rag and bone man. Have a look at us. Go on, have a good look. Pathetic, isn't it? Try to scratch a living out of other people's rubbish. We're like a couple of fleas around a dustbin, we are. It's a good living to be made out of other people's junk if you go the right way about it. It's you. You never seen me coming back without a full car. Oh, I've never seen you go out with a car yet. <laughs> no, mate, why don't you face up a fact? This is a dying trade. What are you talking about? I tell you, it's a dying trade, mate. What you don't realise is that the future of the rag and bone business is dependent on the total economy of the overall condition of the country as a whole. Huh? <laughs> you realise that, didn't you? <laughs> well, you don't read the Financial Times. Well, what's that got to do with it? You've got to know what it's all about. I mean, you, you, you've got to keep abreast of current events. You've got to know what's going on in this world. I mean, what do you know about the common market? Well, around around here, I can tell you that. <laughs> I know all the market around here, and it ain't around here. Oh, you ignorant old man. <laughs> oh, it makes you want to weep straight, it does. You mark my word. The common market's going to make a great deal of difference to the totting business. How? Well, they can come and go as they please. You wait till they build this tunnel under the channel. That's what you've got to worry about. All them foreign rag and bone men. A great queue of horses and cars. Stretching under the channel, pouring out the Dover, stripping the country of its junk. I thought you said there was no junk about. Well, there ain't much, but what there is should be for us. I mean, British junk for the British. That's what I say. <laughs> Wilfred Bramble and Harry H. Corbett have Steptoe and Son. If, for one reason or another, you can't borrow any money, then the best thing you can do is to increase your existing stock by judicious investment. This makes good sense, according to the advice given by his father to Texas financier Clint Murchison, Jr. Money is like manure. If you spread it around, it does a lot of good. But if you pile it up in one place, it stinks like hell. <laughs> <laughs> but investment is a risky business, and perhaps it's best to go for something comparatively safe. Oliver Wendell Holmes. Put not your trust in money, but put your money in trust. Or maybe minimize your risks even further. King Hubbard. The safest way to double your money is to fold it over once and put it in your pocket. <laughs> but if you do set out on the hazardous trail of investment, bear in mind the advice of Billy Rose. Never invest your money in anything that eats or needs repainting. There goes my wife. More <laughs> armed with that. You would not fall for a seductive proposition like this one advertised in World's Fair. For hire for the season, seaside or tour, shares only. The world's ugliest woman. Weight, 18 stone, 31 years old, 1-2. Face full of wrinkles like a prune. Charming personality. That's my wife back again. <laughs> Say your investments are successful. Say you make a great deal of money. Does it help? What's the use of making an enormous amount when the tax man waits around the next corner to mug you and take everything away? Tax is a serious problem. 
a letter to the people. For years, I've claimed income tax allowance as a married man, although I'm single. I now wish to marry, but I'm afraid to do so in case the tax men find out. What is your advice? Does anyone answer to that question? Go and see an accountant. He may not help, but at least it spreads the worry. Well, I'm a very busy man. Do you wish to consult me professionally or not? Well, listen, this morning I received this communication from the Inland Revenue. Let me see. Yes, sir. Blah, 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 blah. 14 pound, 12 and 7. Yeah, well, that's the usual thing. Of course, we're not going to pay this. We're not? No. Well, I don't mind paying some of it. We're not going to pay any of it. Oh, good. What are we going to do? You're going to fight them. What happened to the we? <laughs> now, don't worry, I've got it all worked out. Have they seen your books for the last 10 years? I haven't got any books. Oh, 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 oh. this is going to be dead easy here. Yeah. You can have this lot for 20 quid, already made up. But these, these here? Of course, we'll have to doctor them up a bit. Is that allowed? Yeah, they don't bother as long as they've got some books to play about with. Aren't they going to ask some questions? I mean, look at this page here, this one said expenses. Aren't they going to wonder what I wanted 14 bulldozers for? <laughs> yeah, well, we can rub that out. Hey, but what about this? For services rendered, 14,000 head of cattle to the chief of the Balawunga tribe. <laughs> Yeah, well, you could say he was your scriptwriter. He could be the stuff I get. <laughs> no, I don't think so. It doesn't ring true. Well, look, wait, wait a minute. I've got some more here. Now, let me see. There's the East Finchley Helicopter Company. Putney Electroplating Company Limited. Shepherd's Bush Cemented Stones Limited. They're all good bankrupt firms. Just put your name on them. You can't go wrong. I've used them dozens of times. I can guarantee them. No, I'm sorry. I want a set of my own books. Oh, all right. Then we'll have to start at the beginning. Right. How much did you earn in 1947? 47. Yes, that was a good year, that was. Oh, that me peak that year. Star overnight. 35 quid. <laughs> 35 quid. 1948? 48. Oh, yes, I, I rested that year. What for? I couldn't get any work. <laughs> 1949? I rested that year as well. 50? 50. Ah, oh, yeah. I'll never forget 1950. What happened? Third year out of work. <laughs> I got my grant from the relief fund. Well, that brings us to 51, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. Worked all those years. Five pounds a week, Jody, and thanks for the memory. Used to burn the court for G.H. Elliot. That's your lot? That is my lot. Now, let me see what that makes. Uh, 235 quid in 10 years. And they say there's no money about. <laughs> Tony Hancock and Sid James. Now, Dr. Johnson once wrote... There are few ways in which a man can be more innocently employed than in getting money. Which is, of course, true. But it's an incomplete statement, because there are a great many ways of getting money which are far from innocent. Dubious practice occurs at the highest level of business. Let's hear a little courtroom exchange from the old News Chronicle. It's a lie, isn't it? Well, it's not exactly a lie, sir. It's a commercial term. <laughs> That's only the beginning. Another commercial term which often crops up in discussions of money matters is stealing. And it starts among the youngest members of society. A report from the Gloucestershire Echo. After a school lesson demonstrating the value of money, a nine-year-old girl stole one pound twelve shillings of the cash used in the demonstration. <laughs> Another quote from the Daily Telegraph. Three sit-cup boys admitted at Tower Bridge Juvenile Court, London, to stealing seven shillings and a penny from a car. 
When sharing the money, they threw away one and a penny to make division easier. <laughs> real intelligent show. <laughs> but nowadays, delinquent children may find it hard to keep their ill-gotten gains safe from the other members of their households. Here's the testimony of a wife in a North Kent court quoted in the evening news. My husband cut himself so severely in forcing open the children's money box that he had to spend the contents in Linton bandages. <laughs> the trouble is that criminals are getting increasingly blatant in their approaches. Let's hear a report from the Daily Express. When Mrs. Janet Trent opened her diary yesterday, the entry for the day was already filled in by someone else and read, House burgled 5 a.m. A burglar had stolen 24 pounds as she slept in her Paddington home. <laughs> but even more blatant than that method of getting money, there is, of course, highway robbery. Here's Jack Benny. Gee, it was awfully nice of Ronnie to let me take his Oscar home so I could show it to Rochester. Hmm, sure is dark tonight. No moon. Oh, well. Hey, bud. Bud. Huh? You got a match? Yes. Yes, I have one right here. Don't make a move. This is a stick-up. Mister, put down that gun. Shut up. I said this is a stick-up. Now, come on. Your money or your life. <laughs> Look, bud. I said your money or your life. <laughs> I'm thinking it over. Jack Benny, that joke, which must be, what, over 30 years old, is one of the classic jokes of radio comedy. Which prompts another little quotation from Samuel Butler. Brigands demand your money or your life. Women require both. <laughs> uh, the fact remains that money is powerful and the wealthy can often dictate their own terms. T.E. Brown on the subject. Money is honey, my little sonny. And a rich man's joke is always funny. <laughs> You're not very rich, are you, Alfred? <laughs> Here's Fred Allen. Money talks, and it's the only conversation worth hearing when times are bad. E.W. Howe was not so convinced. When a man says money can do anything, that settles it. He hasn't any. <laughs> and if you want a little sour grapes comfort, listen to this anonymous New England saying. If you want to know what God thinks of money, look at the people he gives it to. <laughs> Continuing this reassurance therapy for us deprived, let's hear the views of a man who's been there. A man who's had it all and is therefore in a position to pontificate on money. The American multimillionaire, Joseph Hirschhorn. After the first million, it doesn't matter. You can only eat three meals a day. I tried eating four and I got sick. <laughs> you can't sleep in more than one bed a night. Maybe I have 20 suits, but I can only wear one at a time. And I can't use more than two shirts a day. Poor devil. <laughs> I thought, though, which gives everyone a nice, warm, moral glow of righteousness, doesn't it? That millionaires don't have all that much of a good time. Because money matters are ultimately moral issues. And the phone rings, and a voice on the other end says, How would you like to be this year's vodka man? And I said, No. I'm an artist. I do not do commercials. I don't panda. I don't drink vodka. And if I did, I wouldn't drink your product. <laughs> he said, too bad. It pays $50,000. I said, hold on. I'll put Mr. Allen on the phone. <laughs> uh, 
and I was caught here in an ethical crisis. Should I advertise a product that I don't actually use? Is the problem because I'm not a drinker. My body will not tolerate those <laughs> spirits, really. I had two martinis New Year's Eve, and I tried to hijack an elevator and fly into Cuba. <laughs> in the past, whenever I had any sort of uh, emotional problem, I used to consult with my analyst all the time. This is public knowledge. I was in analysis for years because of a traumatic childhood I had when I was, um, you know, I was breastfed from falsies. <laughs> me emotionally, you know. I was in a strict Freudian analysis for a long time. My analyst died two years ago and I never realized it. And now, whenever I have any sort of problem, I consult with my spiritual counselor, who in my case is my rabbi. I called him up on the phone, I laid the proposition on him, and he said, don't do it because it's illegal and immoral to advertise a product that you don't use just for the money. And I said, okay, and I passed the ad up. And I must say, it took great courage at the time, because I needed the money. I was writing, and I needed to be freed creatively. I was working on a non-fiction version of the Warren Report. I just passed the ad up. I was really adorable. And a month later, I'm leaking through Life magazine, and I see a photograph of Monique Van Buren in a slim bikini bathing suit, and she's on the beach in Jamaica. And there, next to her, with a cool vodka in his hand, is my rabbi. Woody Allen, of course. We've just about had your money's worth. A couple of thoughts before we go. First, a sensational headline from the Chicago Daily News. Seven million dollar expansion costs seven million dollars. <laughs> Finally, a definition quoted in the Glasgow newspaper earlier in the century. A tip. A tip is a small sum of money you give to somebody because you're afraid he won't like not being paid for something you haven't asked him to do. Where <laughs> oh, did we get the money, Frank? I think we have to pay them. goes into Money was produced by Simon Brett. <laughs>